please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John 6, beginning in verse 60. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him as far as the reading of God's word. So, Lord willing, today, as you've heard in the reading, we're going to complete uh, John chapter 6, which is really one of the great chapters in the Gospel of John. Uh, what is so fascinating about this chapter of the Gospel is, is how it encapsulates uh, the highs and the lows of Jesus' ministry. You may recall, I spoke about that a few weeks ago when we spoke about the, 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 the time that Jesus was walking on the waves. We, we have this, this great high point of Jesus' ministry at the very beginning of John 6 with the feeding of 5,000. Uh, and, and as you all have probably heard before, but it bears repeating, uh, that feeding of 5,000 was 5,000 men. Uh, it's very likely that they had their wives and children with them. So that number uh, could be as high as 20,000. It is almost certainly higher than 5,000 people who were fed at this event, we even know, you know, we know that children were there because if you recall, the, the source of the food uh, that Jesus multiplied was that of a young boy. Uh, but there were 5,000 men, also women and children. Uh, and <clears throat> what we have after the feeding of the 5,000 is many of that crowd follows him. Uh, they follow him over to the next town, but they do so for less than pure motives. Does anybody remember uh, what the motives were of the crowd that were following Jesus after that great feeding? Yes, Mr. Campbell. They wanted more food. They wanted more food. Jesus said in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because what? Because you ate your fill of the loaves. They're there to fill their bellies. They're following Jesus for physical means, for earthly benefits, for the things of this life. 
And so we saw last week that Jesus, uh, he basically rebukes them by explaining in, in rather uh, stark detail their ignorance. He says, in effect, that, that this motivation is, is a revelation of their own <coughs> hardness of heart in refusing to accept the bread from heaven just as their fathers had refused to trust the Lord for their daily provision. I don't know if you recall this or not, but in the wilderness, when the Lord uh, supplied bread from heaven for his people, uh, there were some who took more than was needed, thinking that they would store it up for the next day, not wanting to trust the Lord to provide tomorrow as he had today. Do you remember what happened to that bread? It rotted overnight and got filled with bugs and worms and things of this nature. Uh, they, they weren't trusting the Lord to provide their daily provision. Um, and Jesus is saying, in refusing me as the living bread that came down from heaven, you are doing the very same thing. He exposes their hardness of heart with a very uh, doctrinally heavy, but also very clear uh, message on the doctrine of election and the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, we saw the doctrine of election in verse 44. Uh, when we looked at that, that last week, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And, and there's good reason to believe that that, that specifically, though also the, 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 the teaching about uh, the, <clears throat> the need to, to, to live on Christ as our, as our food and our drink, both of those, but especially the doctrine of election, was probably what the crowds had in mind when they revolted, as we will read shortly, or as we'll discuss shortly. And nonetheless, I say, I say that these are, are heavy messages, but they're also relatively clear. Uh, they're fairly straightforward. Man's inability has to do with the fact that he is born dead in sin, and therefore he does not have any interest in, he does not have any desire for the things of God. And the second, that's the doctrine of election. And so apart from God's saving work, apart from God's uh, opening eyes, giving a new heart, this sort of thing, they will never choose God. The second part of the message uh, is that Jesus is the, <clears throat> is the exclusive source of life. We either feed on him for spiritual life and nourishment or we do not get it. And that will be found nowhere else. And what we find at the end of all this as we just read, Jesus yesterday had anywhere from five to 20,000 people following him. And this passage today, he's going to end with at the very most hundreds, probably dozens. That's a big day. It's a big drop off. We've got highs and we've got lows. And it's important for us to remember that Jesus's life is one of both humiliation and exaltation. And the reason that it's important for us is because guess whose pattern of life you and I are being conformed to? His. Therefore, we ought not be surprised when our lives have highs and lows and highs and lows and sometimes drastic swings even in the course of one day. It is easy to get caught up in the world's way of thinking that so long as everything is going well, that means I'm doing right. And if ever anything is going poorly, it's because God is angry with me. That's not necessarily the case. That can be the case. 
And it's a question that's worth asking because we are finite and fallible human beings. But it's also possible to do everything right and still lose in the earthly sense of the term. Dr. Phillips often reminds us as a staff, and I'll share this with you all because I think it's helpful, um, that there is there is never a decision that you'll come across in your life that you will be able to make everybody happy with. That doesn't exist. And, and once you realize that and you accept that, that's an incredibly freeing thing. You know why that's freeing? Because it means knowing that And there will often be times that you'll have to make decisions that uh, half the people will be mad at you and half the people will be happy with you and vice versa. The reason that's freeing is because that means you're free to do the right thing according to the scriptures regardless of the consequence. It's a very freeing thing. And so today we're going to look at at Jesus as, as a model of that, someone who stays faithful to the right thing regardless of what it costs them. We're going to look at this passage in kind of three uh, points, three sections. First, we'll, we'll consider the departure of the crowd in verses 60 to 66. Second, we'll consider the reason the disciples remained in verses 67 to 69. And finally, with our time remaining at the end, we'll consider uh, what in the world are we supposed to make of Judas? What is Judas doing here? So again, we're going to consider the departure of the crowds, the reason the disciples stayed, and, and what is Judas's role in all of this? First, the departure of the crowds. They begin <coughs> to push back on the Lord Jesus in verse 60. They say, uh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And when they say that what Jesus is saying is hard, they do not mean that it's difficult to grasp. They don't mean it's difficult to understand. Now, praise God, there are some portions of Scripture uh, that that are hard to understand, and the Bible gives us permission to admit that. Uh, Would somebody please read 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Second Peter 3, yes, Mr. Gamble. 3? Yeah, 3, 15 to 16. patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he did in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant are unable to are ignorant and unstable. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Right, so what I love about that passage is when you, you're coming across something, particularly in Paul's writings, and you're like, I don't get it. Peter, under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I don't get it either. And uh, that's, that's a come down, it, it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing. But, but the point is, it's okay to have parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. But most of the core teaching, most of the core principles of the scriptures are not hard to understand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, I'm just going to paraphrase here, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were well-educated. Not God has chosen the foolishness uh, of, of the cross to, to shame the wisdom of the world. In other words, most of the core essential teachings of the Bible are actually relatively easy to understand, and especially the ones that Jesus has laid out for these people that they're saying are hard. 
you can't be saved apart from God acting first. Like, that's not difficult intellectually to grasp. My four-year-old can understand that. There is no life anywhere other than in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's not difficult to understand. Rather, what it means when they say it's hard is that it's hard to accept. It's hard to accept. That's a different thing. As I like to put it when it comes to Christianity, it's often the case that the principle is easy to understand. The practice of that principle, however, is what's difficult. And what they're saying here is it's, it's hard to accept. Now, Jesus then does something that's admittedly uh, unexpected. He says, you think that's tough to swallow? That I am sovereign over salvation, that I'm the only one that can save you. You think that's hard to swallow? He actually presses them even further to reveal even more the depth of their depravity. Notice what he says in verses 61 and 62. He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? Saying you thought election was rough. What are you going to do when you, when you see me, the one before you, the one that you refuse to trust, high and lifted up, ascended to the right hand of the Father. What are you going to do when you realize that this is all about me? That's the question. You you took offense that this one part was about me. It's all about me. A lot of well-meaning teachers will oversimplify and tell you that the offensive part of Christianity is that you have to tell people that they're sinners. It's true. No one enjoys that conversation. But most people are, after you talk for a little bit, pretty pretty willing to admit, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've got some room for improvement. I've got I've done some things that are bad. They might they may not use the word sin, but they're willing to at least conceptually affirm that. The offensive part of the message of Christianity is not that people are sinners. The offensive part is that they are such sinners that only Jesus can save. That there is only one way of salvation and they cannot contribute anything to it. There is nothing they can do to help it along or make it happen. And that's an affront to our pride because we want to feel that we have earned it. We want to feel that we in some way lay rightful claim because of what we have done. And Jesus is saying, everything I'm doing is for you, but it is not about you. That is the offense. It's for you, but it's not about you. And I'll just prove this to you real quickly. What is the chief end of man? That is your purpose in life. It's not about you, but the glory of God and the enjoyment of him as God. That's the purpose for which man is made, not for his own purposes. And that's the temptation that everyone faces ever since Adam and Eve. What was the temptation for Adam and Eve? 
that you will be like God. That you will be in the place of God. That you will determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. It was to seek their own enjoyment and their own glory in themselves. And Jesus is saying, if if you take offense at the fact that I said you're totally dependent on God for salvation, what are you going to do when you're confronted with the fact that I am at the right hand of the Father and that every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord and not you? You see, all the people, all people are born with original sin nature because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And therefore, we all desire to determine for ourselves what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. Some people will will, will see Jesus on the throne and they'll say, I should be there, not him. I think a lot of people in their heart of hearts think that. Others will maybe be a little bit more humble and say, I would like a say in who goes on the throne. This should not be a unilateral decision. In any event, they're trying to steal, they're trying to claim some glory for themselves. The logic is, as they refuse to accept Christ's implicit glory and his sovereignty over salvation, so they will also reject his explicit glory in seeing him ascended on high. Ultimately, the world rejects Christianity, not because the Bible accuses them of sin, but because the Bible is from beginning to end about the glory of Christ above all else. I've talked to you guys before um, about my brother-in-law who was raised in a Christian home. And one of his, the things that really grinds his gears, and we don't say it to grind his gears. We don't say it to offend him. But one of the most unnerving things that can happen at a family dinner is his parents and I, or his sister and I, or or me and, and my kids will talk about how grateful we are to God for what somebody else did in our lives, right? Giving thanks to God for what his dad did to help us or giving thanks to God for the encouragement that my kids are to his parents or something like that. And he'll say, why can't you give them the credit? Why can't you leave God out of it? Why does it have to be about glorifying God? That's the offense. That's the rejection is that this isn't about you and you don't get a say in it. It is all about Christ. Christ is the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. He is the one that the builders have rejected, but he has also become the cornerstone on which it's all built, on which it's all based. And we see then in verse 63 that Jesus' testimony is that only the power of the Holy Spirit will allow them to embrace this message. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's the spirit that gives us a new heart, a new desire, uh, new affections. And apart from that supernatural work, we won't delight in the glory of God. And I feel like I've said that a lot, but that's the thrust of the passage. That's what needs to get through. And so let me challenge you all this morning. Is the glory of Christ your chief delight? Is that your highest aim? That's a question that only you can answer. I want to nuance that a little bit. Because nobody here is fully sanctified, right? Positional and progressive sanctification. We'll talk about that more again on Wednesday night. And every day, even today, we have all desired other things inordinately and all that. That's, That's true. 
But what I'm asking is, is your, is your default position to pursue Christ above all things? Are you committed not to receiving his benefits, but to actually receiving him and seeing his name lifted up in the earth? Is, is the fact that there's an underground church movement in China where, for people that you'll never meet, you'll never know, but that's exploding and lifting up the name of the Lord Jesus, is that a source of joy for you? That's a good litmus test of where you are. On one hand, I can tell you with certainty that no one in here does this 100% perfectly 100% of the time. Because every time we sin, which again, it's more often than we'd like to admit, we're choosing something else over the glory of Christ. But the question is, was that sin in a moment of weakness or is it consistent with your general outlook on life? That's the question. Do you desire to see Christ exalted above all things? Well, most of these crowds did not. And so they depart as we read in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and there's a really chilling word in there and no longer walked with him. They didn't just turn back for a little bit. They didn't get mad and walk away and then come back next week or next month or whatever. No longer. That's a sad reality. That's a sad choice to make and yet that is the choice that they made. And so Jesus looks at the twelve and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answers him with what could be called John's version of the great confession. He's going to talk about Mark, Dr. Phillips is going to talk about Mark's version of the great confession in the morning sermon today. It's a different episode. It's not the same thing. But nonetheless, Peter is still uh, faithfully confessing the faith. And, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we'll pause right there. And I just want to say what I love about this answer is Peter saying, Lord, even if I am offended at that, even if I don't like what you just said, even if I do selfishly want some of the glory for myself, where would I go? Because any way I try and pursue this apart from you is not going to work. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else that will work out. There is nowhere else that will get you what you're looking for. It is only in Christ. And he goes on. He says, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, there's a couple of things I want to note about this confession. Uh, first is that Peter addresses Jesus as Lord. Sometimes this word is just a polite address, someone you respect, like sir, right? Or, you know, mister or whatever. It's, it's a term of endearment sometimes. But in light of what he's going to go on to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the holy one of God, all this kind of language. I, I think it's hard to, hard to imagine that he does not mean the covenant name of God, the divine name of Lord. He's acknowledging Jesus's deity. 
Psalm 27, 1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Peter is ascribing that honor to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the one with life, the words of life. Secondly, Peter notes that Jesus is the unique savior of the world. And this is found in when he says, to whom shall we go? There's, there's, there's nowhere else. And I also, I, I love um, the illustration that, you know, some people will complain and grumble well, how could there only be one Savior? How could there only be one way? How is it that there's only one hope? Well, a man who is starving in the desert doesn't complain that there's only one meal that's offered to him. Someone that's suffering from dehydration doesn't complain that there's only one water bottle that's given to him in an emergency. Uh, the, the people that complain that there's only one way of salvation don't understand the depth of their sin. Don't understand the trouble that they're in. Praise God that there is at least one and only one in the Lord Jesus. And then finally, he says, you have the words of eternal life. The words of eternal life are, of course, the, the word of God, what we have in our Bibles. Um, and this is why I encourage you all so often and so regularly, and I will for as long as I'm here, take up and read your Bible. And do it daily. It is the means by which you grow. It is the means by which you are sustained. And I know it doesn't feel like that every day. It doesn't feel like that for me every day. But it is true. I love the illustration. I probably shared it with you all before. That one of my professors in seminary gave um, saying, you know, I don't remember what I ate for breakfast last Tuesday. But I know that the nutrition that was in that meal helped sustain me and strengthen me for that day, even though I may not have felt it in the moment and it doesn't seem especially special to me now. It's the same way with reading the Word of God, with drawing into the words of life. Um, questions on this before we move on to Judas? So what are we going to do with Judas Iscariot? John mentioned several times throughout the gospel, always kind of parenthetically and, and as an aside before we get to the moment of truth that Jesus uh, knew uh, who it was that would betray him. Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he knew who was going to betray him. Why would Jesus bring Judas into the fold? Why is Judas one of the 12 disciples? Does anybody want to venture a guess? We see why this maybe doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. Why do you bring your betrayer into your inner circle? Well, uh, an old uh, Reformed Baptist pastor, uh, A.W. Pink, gives six reasons that I'm going to run through briefly with you guys for why Judas is there. Uh, first, Judas is there as one of the twelve because Jesus is perfectly obedient to the word of God, perfectly obedient to every prophecy that God set down before him. And Psalm 47 says, excuse me, Psalm 41, 9 says, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. There's 
Old Testament prophecies that one of the, the Messiah's close friends, one of his intimate circle would betray him. And so Jesus brings him into the fold in obedience to the, the, the Father's will, in obedience to the word of God. Secondly, Judas provides an impartial witness to the moral excellency of Jesus. Uh, we read that shortly after he betrays him, in Matthew 27 and verse 4, Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas is a testimony to the sinlessness of Jesus, because even though he betrayed him, he recognized he did so without cause. Third, Judas helps us to see the true awfulness of sin, because he was one who enjoyed close fellowship with the Lord Jesus. He was one who had seen all of the miracles, was there for every sermon. He had even preached himself. He knew the gospel. He knew the power of Christ. And yet, he still desired 30 shekels of silver more. There, it's hard to imagine a, a more stark picture of the power that sin has over the unconverted person. Um, sometimes we can think about people as like, well, if they only knew. Well, Judas knew it all. He'd witnessed everything, and yet he still pursued the way of the world. Judas's presence there is a, is, a, is a caution to us about the power of sin. It's also a solemn warning. Pink writes, the example of Judas shows us how near a man may come to Christ and yet be lost. It's a solemn warning that there can be religious leaders who are not truly converted. This happens. Just because a man has been examined by the presbytery and examined by the session and, and has gone through seminary training and all those things does not mean that he is a Christian. And so we ought not be surprised when uh, men fall away. It is possible to go through all those trials and answer the questions rightly and yet not know the Lord. Uh, fifth, uh, it reminds us that not only in, in terms of leadership, but just in terms of the people in general, we ought not be surprised or caught off guard when we find hypocrites in the church, false professors, false confessors. That's one of the reasons my mom says she doesn't want to join a church is because there's so many hypocrites. And I'm like, yeah, I'm talking to one. But that, that, that notwithstanding, the church is made up of sinners. There's going to be hypocrites. There's going to be false professors. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. And finally, Jesus' choice of Judas to be one of the twelve illustrates how radically different are God's thoughts from our own. Meaning, I wouldn't have planned it this way. I can assure you that I will never intentionally take someone who I know intends to do me harm into my inner circle and let them have full access to my back and a knife in hand. Like, that's, that's not the way I'm going to plan my life. And yet it shows that the wisdom of God is higher than the wisdom of man for in bringing Judas in. That is the, the lever by which Jesus is betrayed, is taken to the cross and accomplishes salvation for all of us. Well, let us pray and we'll be done. God in heaven, we give thanks to you that your ways are not our ways. In fact, that they are so much better. 
And I pray, Lord, for my young friends here that they would grapple with the question, are we offended at the exclusive claims of Christ? Are we offended at the sole purpose that we all have to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever? Are we offended to see Him high and lifted up? I pray that that would not be so amongst any here, but rather that that would be a source of great comfort and delight for our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.